Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray the comfort of your spirit to be with us, to bless us, to help us, to carry us. We don't always understand what you really mean to us in our lives and and what you've done for us. But the one who knows loves much. The one who doesn't, not so much. Help us know so we can love much. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're doing a little short series here at the beginning of the year called Determinations. A a determination is is a deciding that you're going to do something and then actually making sure you do it. There's other words we could use, resolutions, but that, one, that one's a little overused this time of year. So. so I went with determinations, and we keyed last Sabbath on a story from the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1. I want to read just a few of those verses again, Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 14. So you're going you're to need to follow along in your own Bibles today. We don't have the uh, text on the screen today. But if you take the Bible in front of you, I pretty much am using text from the same translation. Jonah chapter 1, verse 14. Therefore they called out to Yahweh. All right, who's they? They are the men on the boat with Jonah. You remember Jonah gets called by God to go do something. He says, no, I'm going to go the other way. He gets on a boat. There's a big, big storm comes up. They try to figure out why. Fascinating story. Says a lot about the nature of polytheism and how they thought at that time. And finally Jonah says, no, it's me. It's on me. I'm running away from Yahweh, my God, uh, because I don't want to do what he told me to do. Um, But if you throw me in, then the storm will stop and you all will be fine. And they're a little troubled at this answer. They try to row to shore, but it's not working. Finally, they're ready to take his advice. Verse 14, therefore they called out to Yahweh. Why am I saying it that way? Well, if you look in the Bible there, you'll see the letters are L-O-R-D capitalized, although the last three are a little smaller. When you see that, it's, it's actually the name of God. And, and why am I saying that? Well, I'm saying that because they existed in a polytheistic reality. And in their reality, there were lots of different gods. So to just say God was not specific. Maybe to us that's specific enough because we tend to be in a monotheistic reality. But, But to just say God was not enough. They specifically were calling upon Yahweh, the God of Jonah, who also happened to be the God of the Hebrews. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, Oh Yahweh, do not... Uh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then verse 16, then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly. It kind of blew their minds what happened. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Probably the first time they'd ever done that. They'd offered sacrifices to other gods, whatever their names might have been. They had made vows to other gods, but because of this intense experience, 
this encounter with Yahweh. They were overwhelmed. They feared Yahweh greatly, offered a sacrifice, and made vows. Powerful experiences often lead to us making determinations, just like it did for the mariners. Maybe you've been through experiences like this. Something powerful happens in your life, and you make vows, or you make sacrifices. Lord, wow, that was intense. I vow to you this. Sometimes that can be a little reckless. Sometimes we say things, and we don't actually carry them through. But at least for the mariners that day, they knew they had been miraculously delivered, and that knowledge changed them. I, I sometimes wonder what became of the rest of their lives, because that's an experience that you don't forget. What was the impact? We don't know that story. Maybe one day we will, but right now we don't know what became of them. Powerful experiences can often lead to transformation. It's lots of stories of people whose life have been a disaster or they were in great danger or something and they meet the Lord and there's a transformation and, and the deliverance they experience leads to determinations that transform the way they live their lives and we stand back and we look at them and we say, wow, what happened to you? But sometimes this idea of, of radical change and transformation, that can be tough for the good ones of you out there. You know who you are, you good ones. You never get in trouble. You always did what your parents told you to do. You made the good grades. <clears throat> you never missed church, and you still don't. You know who you are. You're kind of like Paul. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. <clears throat> if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Like I said, you know who you are. You know. Kind of like Simon when Jesus visited his house. Luke chapter 7. I'll give you a minute to find this one because we're going to read a little bit here. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was, this Jesus, when he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, <clears throat> but, from, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So how much have you been forgiven? I'm not sure that any of us can accurately answer this, especially you good ones. Doesn't it all just kind of work at odds anyway with the whole self-esteem idea? I mean, you wouldn't catch me dead crying on Jesus' feet and dumping expensive perfume on them, right? Pitiful! Or wait, did I miss the point in the story? You see that, right? I don't need to do that. I, I haven't been that bad. Maybe I don't love much. Maybe what's really revealed in this story is how cold my heart can be. Did you notice the song we sang earlier? It's awful easy to sing the songs. We know them. We, they, they just kind of go on, on play in our mind. We don't think about it. Did you catch the words, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. That's not really a song for you good ones because, you know, the way you live, why do you need grace at all, right? Or are we missing the point? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Do I love much? Does my love show through the determinations I make? I want to talk a second about one of the Ten Commandments. I actually, actually wrote a book on the Ten Commandments. I have it here, if you, if you were curious. Yeah. And, and fun fact, on the back there's a picture of me that uh, Brigida took right there in the office in the Boulder Church. Anyway, so there's that. So, yeah, Ten Commandments. How many of you remember the First Commandment? Who remembers the First Commandment? Will you say it with me? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We all know it in King James if we're older than something. I don't know. Most of us all learn that. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Seems a bit demanding on the face of it, doesn't it? But then I guess, based on our theology, if God really is stronger than me and he demands this, I guess I don't really have a choice. But 
but wait a minute, am I missing something here? Am I missing a context? Because, you see, the Ten Commandments are absolutely transcendent in their application. They, they fly out of the setting in which they lie in Scripture and, and inform the whole of our lives. And that's why we learn them in that context. But sometimes, by learning them that way, we lose track of the context that, in fact, these words were spoken to a certain people at a certain time. Now, I'm not suggesting they're not applicable to us. They absolutely are. But sometimes, to understand, we have to remember the context. And often that is the key to the what's and the why's. We would do well to understand the context of the first commandment. And indeed, it's really the context of all ten of the commandments. It's not just arbitrary, the demand of an unopposable God upon a helpless people. There's more to see here. The first thing we have to understand when we think about the context of these commandments is that they were given in a day of polytheism. And I talked about that a little bit before. That means lots of gods. You see, in these days, atheism atheism was really not a thing. There was not really such thing as someone who believed in no God. It really was a matter of which of the gods have you chosen, and usually it was more than one. Israel had a tendency to fall into a Canaanite practice of worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth, two gods, two different gods. Egypt had a whole bunch of gods. And it was not an idle point which god you decided you would serve because when you decided to serve that god, there were presumably certain advantages you got for that and and certainly some disadvantages that might come from not honoring other gods. So this idea was you kind of you looked at the menu and decided, well, I'm a farmer, I better honor this God. So this is the context in which God makes this statement. The Lord gave this commandment to the Israelites. Now I'm saying the Lord. What I should be saying is, Yahweh gave this commandment to the Israelites. Why do I say that? Well, because that is a specific God we're referring to, not the others. So Yahweh gives the commandment to the Israelites. And who are the Israelites? Well, they are a weak and a persecuted people who have been slaves for generations in the land of Egypt, which is a land with a lot of gods, but not really any that seem worried about the Israelites. All those gods seem to be focused on what's good for the Egyptians. And this Yahweh, who gives this command to the Israelites, he didn't give it to them while they were still in Egypt as a test to see if they would be good enough and faithful enough for him to decide to rescue No, instead, he gives it to them after he has demonstrated his love and concern for them by bringing them out. And this is the context of the first commandment. If you were paying attention when Patty uh, gave us our scripture at the beginning here, the spoken word, 
then you heard the context. When we quoted the first commandment together, we quoted Exodus 20, verse 3. How many verses come before verse 3? Two. What do they say, and are they important? Well, yeah, turns out they're really important. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now comes the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That puts a completely different spin on it, doesn't it? Rather than this arbitrary, powerful God stepping forward and saying, it's me or nothing. Instead, it's this God who has already acted, who brought them out of a condition they could never rescue themselves from, brought them out of there, and says to them, before he says that you've got to believe in me, he says, I am your God. I am here for you. Therefore, don't put anybody else in the way. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He identifies himself. I'm Yahweh. He explains what he did for them. I brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of slavery. And then he says, don't worship other gods, because none of the other gods who saw you in the state that you were in cared enough for you to come to you and rescue you. I am the God that rescued you, not them. I saved you, says the Lord. I delivered you. Therefore, I am your God and your deliverer. Focus on me, he says, because I am the only one trying to give you a better life. Really changes that commandment, doesn't it? It's not this arbitrary, look at me and no one else. It's look at me because I'm the only one trying to help you. Keep your focus right here. And really, if you go on with the rest of the Ten Commandments, that's what they're about. They're not commandments in order to be delivered. They're already delivered. What God is giving them is the way to have a good life. Focus here. Don't put anything else out there. Here's how you want to live with each other. Here's how to do this. But back to our point today. By the way, if you want the rest of that, it's all, it's all in the book. So that's the end of the promos. Back to the point today. Determinations. Are you determined to have no other gods before the God who called you and saved you? It is useful at this point to remember that the, de the degree to which you understand how God has delivered you is likely the degree to which you're going to be able to give a response of love and a determination you're willing to keep. Jonah chapter 1 verse 16, Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly 
and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. They understood exactly what had happened. They were all about to die in the ocean, and now they're not. And it's because of this God. They were clear. Luke chapter 7, verse 44, you gave me no water for my feet, Jesus says to Simon, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So here's a question for you. How great is your God? You're going to sing about that a little bit. How great is your God? Would I be able to tell how great your God is by the determinations by which you live your life? You see, if this God has done something great in your life, you're going to be overwhelmed and you're going to vow and you're going to determine to live in ways consistent with what this God has done in your life. Now, not perfectly. None of us do it perfectly. And not for the purpose of being saved. That's not the point. The point is, when you know what has been done for you, you have great love. How much do you love? Would I be able to tell how great your God is by the love you have for him. Well, why should we have love? I want to suggest to you, it's not news, but I want to suggest to you that we have in fact received a very great deliverance. A deliverance that is even greater than that of Israel out of Egypt. Though maybe in your case, it was not as dramatic as that. Yet I have to say, as we age, what we have been delivered from becomes more and more of a real thing, doesn't it? What is our means of deliverance? Well, it looks like this. I think you know this verse. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that didn't happen because you were good enough and deserved it. Romans 5 verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's reality. There ought to be far more weeping sinner woman in me rather than condescending host whenever Jesus agrees to eat at my table, right? I really ought to be more the weeping sinner woman than, yeah, hi, Jesus, I'm your equal. Come on in, have a seat. Not really the attitude I ought to have. And out of thankfulness for my deliverance, I ought to be more like the men who sailed with Jonah, who upon receiving deliverance made sacrifices. That means gave of something of value, time or, or treasure or talent or something like this. Gave of themselves rather than demanding.
So what is the means of our deliverance? And what is the nature of that deliverance that has been promised? So we're going to spend a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15. So I'll give you a second to find it. We're going to read several verses in this chapter, this very powerful chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does it all come down to? Paul writes these words. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. Gospel, code word sometimes, good news is what it means. I would remind you of the good thing I told you, is what he's saying here. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, that means that you heard it and you believed it, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's kind of neat, because we do a past, present, and future there. You received it, you stand in it, and you're being saved in it. That goes forward from here into the future. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. So what are the implications? This was Paul's message. I brought to you this gospel that, that Christ died for our sins according to scripture, was buried and raised on the third day. Jump down to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he... Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jump down to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what have we been delivered from? Well, more than just a storm at sea, and even more than 
than slavery in Egypt, in Jesus, we are delivered from a world gone wrong and from a stumbling and faltering, sometimes painful end to our otherwise meaningless existence where we labor and strive and yet everything fades away. This is what we're rescued from. So for us, there's a different conclusion to the story, and it's the conclusion in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, the conclusion words, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus has redeemed it all. Everything you do, it is not in vain. Because it is part of the great story that Jesus is telling through your life. And he has overcome. I invite the band to come back up we get ready to conclude. And I want to take you back to where we started, especially you good ones who have much to boast about like Paul. Do you know what Paul said after, after he finished his boasting? Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6, that's all the things that make him special, so-called special. But here's what he says in verse 7, Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's called sacrifice. That's called sacrifice. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not my list of good deeds, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul said. Here's all the stuff that supposedly makes me good, but you know what? Rubbish. Just let me gain Christ and join in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here are the determinations that I long for us to make today. And in truth, they're nothing more than just a, a fleshing out of the reality of thou shalt have no other gods before me. Determined. that everything we think that makes us worthy, we would consider irrelevant.
That's the first determination. All the things that I think make me worthy. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Determined that in place of our failing efforts and monuments to ourselves, we would instead know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Determined that knowing this power, we would willingly agree to share in his sufferings to the point, if required, of becoming like him in his death that we might attain to the resurrection with him. Determined to love not like a haughty host, but like one who has been forgiven much and given much. Determined to have no other gods before him. No matter how much your love for Jesus grows, know this. He loved you first and will always love you more.